Father, thank you that the prophet said that as the waters cover the sea, someday a time will come when a knowledge of the Lord will cover this earth. Thank you for the promise of the new covenant where you would put your spirit within us, where you'd take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, that not just a select few, but everyone from the greatest to the least might know you, and through this second birth that we might walk in your statutes and bring glory to your name. We love you, our Father, and thank you for the magnificent grace that you've shown us in Christ. You've commanded us on the first day of every week to gather with the people of God. You told us that we are to long for the pure, unadulterated word of God that we might grow in respect to our salvation. So we come with hungry hearts today. We don't come just to learn. We come to be changed. We know that is a work of the Holy Spirit as he illumines truth to our minds and help us to understand what it means and how to apply it. Father, I know that there are people listening within every stage of life, some brand new baby Christians, some older. But for each and every one of us, you have something to say. Help me to speak across the scan of maturity. Help me to understand myself today, what you would want me to know, that I might be continually conformed to the image of Christ. So we look to the Spirit of God, our teacher, our instructor, our illuminator, who gave us this inspiring inerrant, infallible word. May he help us today. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to Revelation chapter 17. If you're with us for the first time, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not of John, but the revelation of Jesus Christ given to the apostle John. And we've been learning in this revelation that there is coming a day where there will be a leader who will emerge from the old Roman empire and he will rule the world. The Bible says he will have authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And his empire will be the most extensive empire ever known in all of human history. And he will come with a dynamic, with a charismatic, a uh, deceptive methodology that will sway the nations of this world. And in his cleverness, he will bring solutions. He will be, quote unquote, a savior to the world as people look for answers. But his power will come from the pit of hell itself. Satan will empower him out of the abyss. This man is known most popularly to us as the Antichrist. Now, Revelation 17 is a very important chapter. I will tell you, it is one of the more challenging chapters in the Revelation. But in this chapter, we learn of this false religious system that is coming. And we have been learning that this empire, this world empire, initially is going to be held together with a religious glue as all the nations of the world come together. But then after uh, this one world religion comes to the forefront, the Antichrist will not be satisfied to have a multiplicity of religions under a single umbrella. He'll want exclusivity. He'll want the world to worship him and him alone. And then Christ will come back and he will smush the Antichrist and the false prophet, and ultimately the devil himself. Hey, listen, every single prophecy 
for the first coming of Jesus Christ has been literally fulfilled. God is batting a thousand. God alone knows the future. There are no fulfilled prophecies in the Quran, none in the Book of Mormon. Those are false works. Only the Holy Bible, these 66 books that you hold in your lap, can be counted and considered the Word of God. Now, when you look at the political uh, entities in the world today, even within our own nation, it is so difficult for people to get along. But there's coming a day when Satan will use religion to pull them together. People will often, in the name of religion, give everything. Muslims who blow themselves up. Even the apostles who died a sacrificial death because they were unwilling to renounce the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's coming a day when Satan is going to combine the church and the state in order to achieve his evil purposes. Now, we spent two weeks just on six verses. Today, we're going to begin in verse 7 and go through the end of the chapter, and we need to handle it as a whole because there is a section where we are given a prophecy, and then the prophecy is interpreted for us. So, it's that kind of narrative section where you need to deal with it as a unit. So, Fasten tight your pew belt and get ready. We've got a lot of material to cover. But I want to begin by reading the entire chapter. Follow along in your Bibles. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a, a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And then verse 7, where we want to begin today. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is... The other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings, who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose. And they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. 
And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beasts, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, for the sake of those who are new and for the rest of us so that we understand where we've been, let me just briefly review the first six verses, which we've studied two weeks on. Look at the opening verse. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. If you don't have it out there already, put Revelation 8-2 next to verse 1, because if you remember, these are the same seven angels who had the seven trumpets, and these are the same seven angels who had the seven bulls. Let me read Revelation 8 in verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, if you've taken my course on angelology in the Institute of Biblical Studies, then you may remember that there are a number of different classifications of angels. There's cherubim, also called the four living creatures. We've studied them on a few occasions, especially in Revelation 4. We thought about the seraphim when we considered the fall of Satan in Ezekiel uh, 28 and Isaiah 14 and in Revelation chapter 12. They are certainly a high class of ranking angels. Then, of course, we've studied also in the 12th chapter of the Revelation, Michael the archangel, And then there are these uh, seven here. Now, these angels are said to stand before God. And he uses a tense that describes they are there in the presence of God habitually. In fact, that's the way the angel Gabriel described himself when he appeared to Mary. He said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And of course, it was Gabriel, who announced the birth of the Lamb, and it was Gabriel, whom we've already seen, who announces the terrible wrath of the Lamb. Now, there's something that you and I are going to witness firsthand, and it's what we are reading today. We are going to see this work of God Almighty enacted as we are in heaven, and we are going to see these angels step up to the plate and watch God move them across the world to execute His purposes. Now, these seven are not named, but they blew their trumpets in chapter 8, and they poured out their bowls in chapter 16. And now one of those seven, we're told, says, come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Four times in this chapter, sitting, uh, starting in verse 1, there is this woman who's also called a harlot, and she is guilty of porneia, immorality or fornication, depending on your English Bible. And please note from verse 2 that the references to Babylon's religious system is pictured here with sexually charged words. 
Now, God typically, when he refers to Israel as his bride, and when he refers to the church as Christ's bride, does not use this word. But he still uses the term adultery. Why? Because like Israel was married to God and God has not forsaken Israel. He made unconditional promises to her. So forget the supersessionism of our day, that of replacement theology that says God is done with Israel. We will see how wrong that is before we're done with the revelation. But as God was married to Israel, God is married to the church, and so he uses the word that describes extramarital sex, adultery. And so James says that you are adulteresses when you make yourself a friend of the world. You are being unfaithful to God. But when God describes an unbeliever, someone who's never met the living God, who's involved in a false religious system, he uses this word porneia, fornication. And the two are linked, not just in terms of spiritually, but physically. Because very often, we witnessed it this week, did we not, with the United Methodist Church? 53% of all the delegates that came from around the world said, no, marriage is between a man and a woman. And 47% said, no, we need to ordain gay people and marry them as well. Well, they're already doing it in the American church. And the only thing that saved that denomination this week that I have no doubt will lead, end up in a split was the African believers. They are Bible-believing Methodists. And there was more of them so that they voted down the American church. And when the American church threatened them with money, I was so proud of them, they said, keep your stinking money. We don't need it. We're going to stand for what is right, and God will provide for our needs as he chooses. But very often, immorality is wed together with false religion, whether it's the Mormonism of Joseph Smith, a man who had 44 wives, or whether it is the uh, sexuality of homosexuality and illicit heterosexuality that is being endorsed even in Protestant churches today. And so here she is described, this harlot, as being unfaithful to God, and she attracts the kings, the prime ministers, the presidents of the world. Then if you remember, following the invitation in verse 4, in the Spirit, he's carried into a wilderness. In fact, first in verse 3, it says, and he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. She's sitting on a scarlet beast. She is a spiritual whore of sorts. And of course, verse 15 tells us that her sway is over peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And then we saw that not only does she have a powerful influence across the world, she has great wealth. In verse 4, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. This woman is going to be extremely prosperous. Why? Because she will be wed to the state. And the state will fill her coffers as long as she obeys her leadership. And so God describes her colors of purple and scarlet. And we noted last time that that was an exquisite color in the first century, usually only worn by kings 
because it was this single most expensive dye in the world. And she is described as being dressed in gold and precious stones. And she has a golden cup, given the appearance of being a, a utensil in God's hand, but it's filled with wickedness and immoralities. Furthermore, if you remember in verse 5, we learn that this harlot, this woman known as Babylon, she is the root, the mother of all false religion. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. She is the mother of harlots. She is where all false religion began. And so we went all the way back to the book of Genesis, where God prophetically by type, much like with Abraham on Mount Moriah, illustrates the coming Christ. With Nimrod there at the Tower of Babel, illustrates the coming Antichrist. And so Babylon is the source of organized rebellion and worship and adoration and idolatry. It all started back in Babel or in many of your English Bibles, Babylon. It's the same word, just in shortened form. And so two weeks ago, we studied the Tower of Babel and its prophetic significance. Now, where spiritual religion, true religion, is based on the revelation of God, False religion is always based on the wisdom and the revelation of man. And so all of the religions of the world have a common property that man can somehow, by his own mind and effort, achieve what he wants to achieve. And it's the opposite of what biblical Christianity teaches. There's nothing the Bible says that we can do to merit heaven. We don't need a boost from below. We need a birth from above. Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And so she's given this title, and we noted this is one of the few times in all of the New Testament when all caps refer not to an Old Testament quotation, but indeed to a title like the title over the cross. Verse 6, now I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. This harlot is described as being drunk. She persecutes God's people. And during the tribulation period after the church is gone, those who have never heard the gospel before, which would exclude virtually everyone today within the sound of my voice, but those who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power, through 144,000 Jewish witnesses, because God's not done with the Hebrew people, through two special witnesses, through an angel who flies in the heavens, the great commission will be fulfilled. This gospel shall go to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said during this seven-year period. And what we've not been able to do in 2,000 years, God will pull off for us during this time period. And millions of people will call upon Yeshua in faith, even the Jewish people. And everyone who believes on Jesus will be executed or deprived of basic human needs because you'll be able to buy or sell nothing. And so death will sweep the, par- the planet. And this Babylonian whore will persecute the people of God. She will be drunk with the blood of the saints. But as we will see, there will come a time when the Antichrist will have no latitude for this woman. He won't be satisfied with this harlot who gathers all the religions of the world together. He wants exclusive worship. And so we're told in Revelation 13 and verse 15, and it was given to him, that is the second beast, the false prophet, 
to give breath to the image of the beast. There's going to be an image. We studied it in the 13th chapter that will be set up there in a rebuilt temple up on top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And this image is going to literally be given breath. It will speak so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And of course, this will be the total eye-opener for the Jewish people when the abomination of desolation, that's this event, the Antichrist goes in and he says, I'm God, there's an image that literally comes to life and they will realize he cannot be God, he is a false prophet because idolatry, a violation in the Decalogue will be displayed on that day. So during this time in human history, the soil of the earth will be covered with the blood of the saints. And those who oppose this one world religion and ultimately the Antichrist himself will be martyred. And that's what false religion has done throughout the centuries. It has martyred tens of thousands and millions of God's people but in a way in the future like the world has never, ever seen. Please notice how verse 6 ends. John said, when I saw her, I wondered greatly. That is to say, he's, he's blown away by the vileness of her persecution. Now, that's where we left off. And so now one of the seven angels is going to explain some things to him. And if you're using your note-taking outline there in your bulletin, the Apostle John is going to record for us the relationship between the woman and the beast. And he's going to describe this relationship on three levels. First, the beast comes to carry the woman. That's the first thing I want you to see. The beast comes to carry the woman. Please notice how God's angel responds to John here in verse 7. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Now, we just read in verse 6 that John said, when I saw her, I wondered greatly. It's actually a play on words in the original. Literally, it says, I wondered a wonder, I marveled a marvel. And again, he's just astounded as he sees this unrestrained wickedness of this spiritual harlot who has filled herself with the blood, with the martyrdom of God's people. He's amazed. He's marveled. He's astonished. Why? Because as we'll see in a moment, the city in which this takes place, in which this is headed, that affects the whole world, is the city of Rome. So he's carried away and he's, and he's witnessing... The headquarters of this harlot being the city of Rome itself, and in the first century, remember the city of Rome was the church of the catacombs. Some of you have been with me to the city of Rome. We did a Footsteps of Paul tour years ago, and it's shocking to him that this church that is leading the way across the planet in the proclamation of the gospel and even being willing to be persecuted is now going to become headquarters for a false religion. So the angel said to him, the angel said to me, why do you wonder? It's kind of a rhetorical question because he's going to tell him that there's no need to wonder about this wonder, for this angel is going to reveal and explain to him the answer. Notice, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So here's this woman. 
she is viewed as being carried by the beast, and the explanation that follows is going to be more about the beast than about the woman, the harlot itself. She is not carrying the beast. The beast is carrying her. She has an alliance with the beast. Again, the Antichrist. Most of us know the beast by his most popular name, though the word Antichrist never appears in the Revelation. And the only one who ever uses it, of course, is the Apostle John in his epistles. He is most commonly called the beast, though he has 30-some different titles given to him in the Old and the New Testament. And you might think that the person sitting on the animal would be controlling the beast, but as this chapter is going to reveal, the one who is underneath her is actually controlling her. And before he's done, he's going to destroy this one world system of religion for his own one world system of religion. I tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Now, please notice he does not say the mysteries, plural, but I will tell you of the woman and the beast when he describes this. He says of the mysteries, singular, because there's not two mysteries, the woman and the beast, but one mystery. And the reason revealed for this lopsided explanation, because it is not the woman who's ruling, it is the beast, it is the Antichrist who is ruling. These two are linked together, they're inextricably tied together, but the Antichrist is just using her. Much today, as politicians will sometimes use Christians in the church in order to achieve their goals and their plans. We've had presidential candidates that have come here and in my office and senators and U.S. representatives, and I always try to search out what their motivation is, and I always, without shame, ask them the diagnostic questions to see if I can share the gospel with them. Well, here's a time that is coming when the state is going to use this religion. Look at verse 8. He describes it more fully. The beast, the Antichrist that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. Now, the fact that the beast was now and is not and will come up out of the abyss was introduced to us further, do you remember, it? back in Revelation 13. Hold your finger here and go back a few pages to Revelation chapter 13. You should bring a Bible with you. You need a Bible. You'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have one. Now, remember, every time you see the term the beast, it is either literally referring to a person, namely the Antichrist, or it is referring to the kingdom that he represents. Now, back here in chapter 13, let's think again about the survival and the revival of both the Antichrist and his empire. Now, we learned a whole lot about this man when we studied the prophet Daniel. If you weren't here for that series, go to the App Store, type in Search the Scriptures, download the Search the Scriptures app, and you can listen to that series. But actually, Daniel 7 and Daniel 11 teach us more about the Antichrist than any book in all of the Bible. He is described in that book as an intellectual genius of sorts. He is an incredible orator. He has an ability to speak like few have. He's the master politician. He's a military mastermind, but he is an evil deceiver. He is a man who's coming, who has had no equal in the history of the world, and he will be Satan's instrument to destroy Christians and Jews during this time. Revelation 13, look at verse 3. I saw one of the heads 
as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. So John's describing this coalition of kings, and one of the kings, one of the heads is killed, so to speak. He is slain. And the whole earth is amazed because he's healed. And so they follow after the beast. Now, if you remember, this is a challenging verse for many faithful Bible expositors for the simple reason that one of the things that isolates Jesus as unique is his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection is a declaration. It is an announcement. Remember what Paul said in Romans 1.4, that Jesus was declared, he was announced, the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is important because it says Jesus is Lord, that he is sinless, that death could not trap him in the grave because he never, ever sinned. And so that verse speaks of the deity of Christ like many similar to it. And so if the Antichrist is resurrected, that seems to diminish Christ's claim by the resurrection, maybe even fully dissolve it. And so to get around it, Some say, well, uh, it's not really the Antichrist who is resurrected. This must be his kingdom that is resurrected, that it's not referring to a specific person, but of his kingdom. Well, we saw the problem with that interpretation in the context of Revelation 13, but I at least appreciate what they're trying to do. Still others say, well, this was a feigned death. This was a fake death. This is one of the Antichrist lying miracles that he didn't really die. He just appeared to die and that this was a fake resurrection. And that's taught by some good Bible expositors that the Antichrist will stage this resurrection. And they would say, since only Christ's resurrection is an affirmation that he is Lord, this is not something the Antichrist can do. So if the Antichrist is indeed slain, as the simple reading of Scripture would indicate, then how do you reconcile that with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ being an affirmation of his deity? Well, there are several options. Number one, we know that Satan is delegated authority at times to be able to do miracles. You remember that occasion when Satan comes into the presence of God and he says, Job, yeah, Job loves you just because you've bought his love. Take away his blessings and we'll see if he really loves you. So God sent a tornado on his home and wiped out his family. And then God sent uh, through Satan these boils on his body and That's an expression of Satan's miraculous power. We saw it when Moses confronted the magicians of Egypt, and they took their sticks, and they also turned them into snakes, and the water into blood. We see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describing lost people who had never known him, who preach in his name, who cast out demons in his name, and who even do miracles in his name. Even Judas, when the He is sent out with the 12. He does miracles, and yet he is a lost man. And so some would say, well, you know, uh, what we have here is just a a lying miracle of sorts. But again, uh, some would say this is staged, and so let me read verse 3 again. I saw one of his heads, one of the heads that were persons on this beast, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and follow after the beast. So they say, it's 
Not that he was really slain. It was as if he was slain. But that is neither the meaning in Greek or in English. And the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. The exact identical structure and phrase in the Greek New Testament is used earlier in Revelation 5, 6. John observed, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. By this, John does not mean that Jesus was not really slain but that he had the literal marks of death. By extension and application, the simple reading of Scripture is that the Antichrist is literally actually assassinated. He is literally actually dead, but he is raised back to life. You say, then how do we pull this together? Very simply, the Bible would make a distinction between someone who is raised to life and someone who is resurrected to life. Elijah the prophet raised someone from the dead. Elisha the prophet raised someone from the dead. The Lord Jesus, ever before his resurrection, raised three people from the dead. After his ascension, Peter raised someone from the dead. Paul raised someone from the dead. But Jesus, the Bible says, is the first fruits of resurrection. He is the very first one ever to come out of the grave because in those seven examples, plus one fellow who falls in the prophet's bones and pumps back to life just from being buried in the same grave, all of those people eventually died again. But the Lord Jesus was not simply raised to life. He was literally resurrected to life. And the fact that he has resurrection power, he uses as a polemic for his deity. Do you remember in that great chapter, John 5 is one of the great chapters in the Bible by which Jesus persuades people that he is not simply human, but that he is divine, that he is God in a body, God in human flesh. And in John 5, 21, he said, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. He meant what He said, and He said what He meant, and no one can duplicate that. Only God can resurrect people from the dead. And there's coming a day when men will hear the voice of the Son of God, and some will come to a resurrection of eternal judgment. They will be given a new body suited for hell that will never be consumed. And others will come to a resurrection of life suited for heaven that will walk on streets of gold. So Satan is the great counterfeiter, and he is going to produce a counterfeit miracle. Yes, he was assassinated. Yes, he was dead. But he will come back to life. He will be raised to life. And when he is raised, not resurrected, he will have the world's attention. He will deceive the whole world. That's what Revelation 13, 12 tells us. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. So the second beast, also called the false prophet, when this miracle happens, he will convince the world to worship the beast, the beast of beasts, the Antichrist himself. Now back to Revelation 17 with that review. Revelation 17 and go to verse 8 of that chapter, if you will. Revelation 17 and verse 8. The beast you saw was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. What this verse is referring to is that the beast of the Antichrist that John saw was and is not, and he comes back to life. We just studied that. 
This satanically empowered resurrection or raising to life is what is going to catapult this world leader to have the world's attention. Now, the Bible tells us that he comes up out of the abyss, and the Bible also tells us he comes up out of the sea, and it further delineates he comes out of the great sea. God has one great sea in Scripture. It's the Mediterranean. And just as the prophet Daniel articulated and his revelation confirms, there is coming a revived Roman Empire that Daniel prophesied. And from that revived Roman Empire that will come out of Western Europe, one nation will come into prominence from which the Antichrist himself will come. And so when the Bible describes him coming out of a sea, we saw in that chapter, it's not a literal sea, but much like we use it figuratively of the sea of humanity, out of the nations of the former empire, a real human is coming. Yet on the other hand, The Bible says here he comes up out of the abyss. Do you remember the abyss? We studied it in Revelation chapter 9. We saw that angel who opened up the abyss, and all of these demons are given permission to torment men on the earth for some five months. The abyss is that place where the worst of the worst of the worst of all demons are found. Remember on that occasion when Jesus met the Gerardine demoniacs there in Gadara or Kersi? Some of you have been with me to Kersi. We saw the actual tombs that Jesus describes and the hill that literally goes right down into the Sea of Galilee. There's only one place in all of Israel. It's a class A spot where that could have taken place. And those demons beg the Lord not to send them into the abyss. Why? Because when you're in the abyss, you have no power and no authority to torment men. Your, your ministry, so to speak, for a time is over. And so Jesus sends him into that herd of some 2,000 pigs that run headlong into the water. But I want to tell you the most heinous of all the demons are in the abyss because they have violated the state in the realm in which God allowed them to function. And so God locks them up in the abyss. But there's a demon who is going to inhabit this coming son of perdition who will give him authority and power and the ability to perform miracles and will bring his body back to life. And when it happens, the world will worship him. Look again, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and he'll go to destruction. That's chapter 20. We'll see when. And those who dwell on the earth whose names has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. This is a turning point in this ministry of the Antichrist. All who dwell on the earth, the Bible says in verse 8, will worship him, specifically everyone whose name is not found in the Lamb's book of life. Listen. If the rapture happens today and your name this morning is not registered in the Lamb's Book of Life, you are going to worship the beast. That's what the Word of God teaches. Now, God, the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, knows the hearts of all men. 
And so we've studied a little bit about the book of life, and when we come to Revelation chapter 21, we're going to read only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are going to enter into heaven. And yet the Bible affirms in the Revelation that their names were written before the foundation of the world. That is, God has a book. Someone says there's a new name written down in glory. Not exactly. Maybe a check mark next to the name, but it's written before the foundations of the world. Why? Because our God is an omniscient God. He knows the hearts of all men. But the fact that God knows, which is one of the things that makes Him God, does not in any way, shape, or form change anyone's free will. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's. Is your name there today? Do you know that? I hope it is. I wouldn't bank on that. I hope it is to use the English expression hope versus the New Testament. No, you need to know that you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And if you don't know what that means, you should come tonight to meet the pastor and get that settled. Or if you're listening online, go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to, would you like to have God as your friend? Chapter 3 affirmed for us that if your name is written in that book, it will never be erased. The very verse that some teach, you can lose your salvation, and the context teaches the exact opposite, that your name will never be erased from that book. So here's this beast, the Antichrist, who is coming, and he will carry the woman, not because he loves her, but because he is going to use her like a harlot, and when his goals are accomplished, like a man with a prostitute, he'll discard her like a piece of trash and he'll move on. Secondly, there's the beast who comes to carry the woman. There's also the beast who comes to the city of the woman. The beast who comes to the city of the woman. Look now, if you will, at verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. This one world religion where this woman or this harlot sits is described as a place of seven mountains. Now, a sloppy handling of Scripture where you get your theology not from the Bible but from novels and other popular internet sites will lead you to some false conclusions. One popular novelist says, well, this is modern-day Babylon there in Iraq. Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins admit they call it a novel, okay? So I give them room there because Tim LaHaye is a great guy. Jerry Jenkins had his own issues, but Tim LaHaye was a godly man now in heaven. But in their Left Behind series, they make Babylon the city of New York. Others make it Mecca. Some say it's Hollywood. Other people say it's the city of Jerusalem. And the temptation sometimes is, is to interpret the Bible through the lens of modern-day circumstances rather than letting Scripture speak for itself. Now, we do know that the place where she sits in verse 8, as verse 18 indicates, is the great city. And we know that this city is built on seven mountains. So if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, there's only one city in all the world that can meet the parameters that is described in chapters 17 and 18, and that is the city of Rome. The city of Rome which, of course, is the headquarters for Roman Catholicism, which claims to be the one true church. Now, the Roman church says that Karl Brogy is damned to hell. Why? Because I knowingly, willfully rejected their theology 
to embrace something that they think is contrary. Now, if you were never Catholic, you can be saved in your ignorance along with all the isms of the world, but they say there is only one true church led by the vicar of Christ, the Pope himself. But let me give you some reasons as to why Babylon is not that literal city of Babylon in modern-day Iraq, but a different Babylon, as it's qualified back in verse 5, as a mystery. We're talking about mystery Babylon, and she is called the great city. Now, remember, let me read the prophet Isaiah from this 13th chapter. There was a time in Israel's history when the kingdom split, 10 northern tribes, Israel, two southern tribes, Judah. And God sent prophets to warn the 10 northern tribes, the Assyrians are coming, you need to repent. They didn't listen, the Assyrians came. And then God judged the Assyrians. Then God warned the two southern tribes, you better get right or the Babylonians are going to come. But they did not listen either. Isaiah 13, let me read the prophecy. He writes this 80 years before it happens, by the way. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb. It reminds me of our senators this week, so disgusted. They could not get 60 votes. They could only get 53 votes. They could not get 60 votes that would say, if a baby is born alive, that that baby has a right to be protected. You could not get 60 senators who would agree that that baby that is alive and born and outside of the womb deserves to be protected. Those are wicked men in Washington, D.C., and they better repent or they are going to meet God in holy judgment It is a sad day in America. We have rejected the living God, and God has given us over to a depraved mind, an upside-down mind, a reprobate mind, where we call evil good and good evil. And we do this, well, this is a woman's right. Look, I don't care if you grind up the baby one month after he or she is conceived, or you take a knife and put it through the baby's chest after the baby is born. It is wrong, it is evil, it is wicked, but it's not beyond the forgiveness of God Almighty. And their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he concludes in verse 20. Listen. It, Babylon, in Iraq, will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. Now, some have said that when Saddam Hussein was in power and he purposed in his mind to rebuild Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, that it would become the future headquarters of the coming Antichrist. But that prophetic conclusion to sell a few books for a few cheap 
you know, sales goes against what God has said. And what he did, by the way, by constructing a few buildings in one of his palaces, most of which are in ruins after he died, and no one ever inhabited that city. It is, even when he built those few buildings, it was 97% uninhabited, and today no one lives there. It's just a tourist trap. God said they would never live there. And since God allowed the city of Babylon to be destroyed, be destroyed, no one has ever lived there. Even the Arabs, even the Bedouin shepherds won't go there. They're afraid of the place. They think it is cursed. So I know it doesn't mean that. Neither does ancient Babylon, by definition, refer to some of the other cities that people have postulated for it. Remember, this is mystery Babylon, and by definition, a mystery is something that is in the Old Testament, concealed, but in the New Testament is revealed. The fact in verse 5 that he writes, a mystery Babylon, or some of your texts just say mystery Babylon, singles us that he's using a symbol that will need to be interpreted. In fact, John uses the identical terminology in Revelation 11 and verse 8 when he speaks of Jerusalem and he calls it the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, there are only two cities in all the Bible that are called the great city. One is the city of God, Jerusalem, the most mentioned city in all of the Bible. The other is the city of man, Babylon, the second most mentioned city in all of the Bible. And just as Jerusalem is the city of God where the true Christ will someday rule from, Babylon in Rome is the city of man in which the Antichrist is going to rule from. And so Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, in his first epistle, said in the 13th verse, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Peter here is giving some passing salutations from the believers from the church in Babylon, which was the pseudonym in the first century for the city of Rome. We use code names all the time. When we speak of Wall Street, we're talking about the city of New York. And of course, it's not by accident that uh, Babylon is a name for Rome because it was a time, it was a city much like old ancient Babylon of great size, of great splendor, of great decadence, of great evil in terms of their morals. And just as ancient Babylon was used to smush the temple there in the uh, city of Jerusalem and carry away God's people for 70 years into captivity, even so the city of Rome persecuted the early Christians, and in 70 AD, they ultimately decimated the city of Jerusalem. And so, it's not by accident that every single one of the church fathers in all of their writings, the church fathers are these godly men who lived after the apostles died, and they wrote a whole lot of things. In fact, the entire New Testament can be replicated just from the writings of the church fathers, as I covered for you in the course that we taught on bibliology. These were godly men who were much in tune with the Scripture, and every single one of them says that Babylon in the first century was a nickname for the city of Rome. And sometimes you would call it that for your own protection. You didn't want to speak against the Roman government, so you spoke against Babylon. And by the way, one of the earliest commentaries ever written on the book of Revelation 
refers to Babylon as the city of Rome. Not to mention beyond the church fathers like Asenius and Arrhenius and Tertullian, all of the church father, all of the reformers, Martin Luther and John Knox and Wycliffe and William Tyndall, they all said that Babylon in the Scripture in the New Testament referred to Rome. Not to mention, look what he says down in verse 18, the woman whom you saw is, circle that verb, is, not will be, is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This verse tells us that the woman is both a false religious system, but she's also a city, just like the beast we saw refers to his person, but it also refers to his kingdom. And please note, he says specifically, she is the great city. That is, this is a city that is functioning and operable in 95 AD, which immediately removes the suggestions like New York or Hollywood or other places. In addition, he describes this city as being built on seven mountains, on seven oros, seven hills. Now, sometimes in our modern-day terminology, we impose in our thinking and sometimes upon the Scripture uh, a definition to a term that is not faithful to the Scripture. For instance, when I take people to Israel, one of the things that often amazes them is that the Sea of Galilee has no salt water in it, that it's a lake. Well, you should know that anyway, because it's also called in the New Testament the Lake Gennesaret, and it's also called the Sea of Kenneth and so forth, but, or the Tiberias Lake or the Tiberias Sea of Tiberias. But it's a, it's a lake. But yet the Jewish people and the Romans use the term sea to refer to both large freshwater bodies and large saltwater bodies. We go to the Mount of Olives, one of the most significant and important places on the face of the earth. The city, I mean, the mountain from which Jesus ascended into heaven, the mountain at the second coming, he will literally come back to. You say, that's a mountain? Looks like a big hill to me. Because oros means a mountain or a hill. And it is used in first century Greek of a large hill or even a great and mighty mountain like Mount Heron. So he's referring here to a city that is built on seven mountains or seven hills. And so he says in verse 9, notice... Here is the mind which has wisdom. The truth that is being presented symbolically needs to be interpreted correctly. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. This great city is built on seven mountains, seven hills. And that's why Victorinus, who gave us the very first commentary on the book of Revelation that has been found identifies this as Rome. Here's a picture of an ancient Roman coin from the time of, of John. It is, you see here, a picture of the goddess Roma, and she is seen sitting here on seven hills. Here's a map. Originally, Rome was, had seven small mountains or hills along the Tiber River, and their name, Palatine, Aventine, Salian, Equiline, Viminal, Quir Quirimal, and Capitoline. And so when you make Babylon New York, it's ridiculous because New York, number one, is not built on seven literal hills or mountains. It was not in existence. And this is a city that is in existence when John writes, there's only one place in all the world that can fit the criteria. And it is a city that had great sway over peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. 
Put out on the margin, here's another reason why we know it's Rome. Put out on the margin next to this verse, Revelation 18.20. I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but let me read it to you. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you or on your behalf or for the way she treated you. God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Now, notice apostles is not apostle, but it's plural. He is describing a city where the apostles and the prophets and the saints were martyred. We just read that this place was filled and drunk with the blood of the martyrs. And there's only one city in all of church history in which more than one apostle was martyred in, and that is the city of Rome. Peter was martyred there. Andrew was martyred there. Jesus' half-brother, James, was martyred there, and some believe Peter was martyred there. But it's the only city that fits the criteria. And certainly it can't be Jerusalem, because notice what Revelation 18.21 says. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Mystery Babylon, this coming place, a real city where there'll be a worldwide religion has an expiration date. There's no expiration date for the city of Jerusalem. Messiah, when he comes, will literally rule there for a thousand years. Now, let's read verses 9 and 10 together. Stay with me. This is not the milk of the word. This is the meat. Gird up your minds for action. Don't drift. Stay with me. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other was not, has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. Now, please note. Not only are there seven heads considered to be seven mountains, but they are also considered to be seven kings. And just like we studied earlier in Revelation, when you see the term the beast, it can either refer literally to the person or it can refer to the kingdom that he represents. When I say Hitler bombed England, I'm not saying Hitler got in an airplane and pulled the, the hatch to open the bombs. I'm saying that obviously the German Air Force bombed England. And so when he is describing this place, he's describing not only an actual person, but he's describing an empire of sorts. And so now the angel tells John that the seven mountains also stand for seven kings, where five are said to be fallen. One is, meaning he's currently alive, and then there's a seventh king who has not yet come. Now, when does John write the book? We have a firm date. He writes in 95 AD. And by the time he writes, five great kings or five emperors had already sat on the throne there in the city of Rome. Not by accident, only five. Caesar Augustus, Caesar Claudius, Caesar Caligula, Caesar Tiberius, and Caesar Nero. And when he writes in 95 AD, Caesar Domitian is on the throne. He's the one, if you remember, who exiled John to the Isle of Patmos from where he's recording this great revelation. And yet there's another one that is coming. This seventh king is further described in verse 11. Notice, the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. 
So he's the seventh beast. He comes on the throne in this revived Roman Empire, but he dies. And then he comes miraculously out of the grave, empowered by the evil one. And so in another sense, he's like an eighth. He goes into the grave a human. He comes out of the grave a superhuman because he's a human who's empowered by the devil himself like no one has ever been. Verse 12, the 10 horns which you saw, mentioned back in verse 7, are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, a short time. The beast not only has seven heads, but he also has 10 horns, which represent 10 kings. Now, if you remember, when the first sealed judgment came, the uh, first horseman of the apocalypse comes on a pale horse. He mimics Christ. He comes as a man of peace. He has no arrows in his bow, and he comes with a peaceful conquest of the nations. And we've already studied in Daniel and in Revelation that there is coming a revived Roman Empire that will be a coalition of 10 nations that will come together. So while there are seven heads that chronologically represent successive rulers, there is also 10 horns that represent 10 kings, 10 contemporaneous nations that are ruling together under the puppetry of the Antichrist. Verse 13, precisely tells tells us. These, these 10 kings, have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. And who would do otherwise but to give him authority, this super man of Satan? Verse 14 indicates these will wage war against the Lamb. We'll study that in chapter 20. Can you imagine that there's going to be a coalition of nations that are going to try to uh, fight off Christ and his army that is going to come from heaven. We'll see how they will learn that. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And so there in the campaign of Armageddon that we've studied, that we will look at in depth in the 20th chapter, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings is going to come and he's going to crush Satan and his antichrist and his false prophet and this coalition of nations. The beast will be in essence smushed and cast into the lake of fire. Now one more point, and I'm just about done. Beyond the beast who comes to carry the woman, beyond the beast who comes to the city of the woman, finally, there's the beast who comes to destroy the woman. The beast comes to destroy the woman. We're told now in verse 15, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. He's going back to verse 1. The woman sits on many waters, but now he describes this symbolically what it means. It refers to peoples and nations and multitudes and tongues. And so here in these future days that will be at the end of time during the great tribulation, the apostate harlot religion of the world that will haste, hold sway over the whole world is going to be crushed. This Babylonian monster is going to turn around and to destroy the Babylonian mother. Verse 16, and the 10 horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Simply put, the honeymoon 
between the beast and this one world government stationed out of the city of Rome will be over. Now, John doesn't tell us when this is going to happen, but Christ does in the Olivet Discourse, as does the prophet Daniel. It is going to happen right in the middle of the tribulation. So in the first half, you have this one world religion. But in the middle of the tribulation, after the Antichrist comes out of the grave alive, supernaturally, he is going to go into the temple and present himself as God, and he'll have nothing to do with this one world religion that is led out of Rome because he wants his own one world religion. Why? Because he wants to be worshiped. Listen to these verses from Revelation 13. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him? Satan has always wanted to be worshiped, and he will get his wish They will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her up. He is going to destroy that. He'll have no patience for this one world isms of the world brought together. Verse 17 tells us that God is working this for a purpose. Look at verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. They are carrying out the purposes of God, just like Nebuchadnezzar came down and destroyed Judah, and then God destroyed Nebuchadnezzar. Just like the Assyrians came down and destroyed the 10 northern kingdoms, then God destroyed Assyria. And just as these 10 nations are going to destroy this one world government, It is according to the purposes of God, and God will ultimately destroy her. Now, God is working everything together for good, and God uses even the evil of men to praise Him. God is never the author of sin, but He can use sin in a sinless way, and this coalition of ten nations are only accomplishing His purposes. Now, we'll look at verse 18 next time. We're out of time, so I won't go there, but let's talk about how this applies. Three applications in closing. Number one, don't ever forget that Satan is not against religion. He is for it. Satan's not against religion. He's very much in favor of it. When the devil slithered into that garden, remember what he said to Eve, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. What was the devil telling Eve? He was saying, I'm going to tell you how you can be godly. I'm going to tell you how to be godly, though, my way. This was not a temptation to fall down. This was a temptation to fall up. Satan is not against religion. He often uses religion towards a worldwide purpose that he is accomplishing in the world. You say, how do you protect yourself from this? There's great deception that is happening today. There's only one way. You get your mind and your head in this book. And if you are a dad here today or a single mom, you're the family shepherd, and it starts with you. And on the Lord's Day, you ought to say, we're not going to watch Pastor Brogy in the living room while we sip iced tea. We're getting up and we're going to church, assuming you're not sick. We're going to get up 
And we're going to be with the people of God on the Lord's day. And some of you, when you leave this community, especially our Marines and Navy personnel, you need to be sharp and alert as to what kind of church to look for, and we'll help you if we can. And it's essential that all of this nonsense that's being peddled across the American pulpit of entertainment and soft preaching be obliterated, and that men of God do what Paul says they're supposed to do in Titus 1.9. They're to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he, the pastor, will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Hold fast. You can't do that in a 15-minute sermon. You've got to decide if you mean business. I am telling you, there is evil that has opened, is just pouring across America. This week, I was so disheartened when I saw Walmart with that three-minute commercial come out promoting these two gay men in the aisle of Walmart making a decision over a purchase. In your face, evil, like never before. Listen, the evangelical church needs to be in the Word of God, and we need to put the Word of God as our highest authority. All this sheer nonsense of this woman who goes around, she says, I have Holy Ghost goosebumps. That's sick, that's perverted, that's twisted. Jesus is calling. He's not calling for you to write down in the first person like he's dictating. Oh, God's sending me a text message right in the middle of a prayer. And let me tell you what the Lord's saying. That is arrogant, that is man-centered, it is evil, it is wrong, and it is inconsistent with the written and holy word of God. A pastor is to hold fast to the faithful word. Why? That he might be able both to exhort in sound doctrine But here in the evangelical church in America, we've put experience over everything. And we are to be sound in doctrine that we are able to refute those who contradict. And that refers not just to the pastor, it refers to the person in the pew according to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. You need to get into this book. And not one of these 10-minute daily bread devotionals. I'm not against that. Let that be a three-minute break at lunch. But you need a time where you are in the Word of God. You can be on your Facebook. You can be on your TV shows and your Instagram and everything else. But you don't have time for this book? No wonder we can't impregnate our children with truth. Second. It would be simplistic to say that the woman in the passage, and this passage represents only the Roman Catholic Church. By the way, that is a common error that many evangelicals make. It's obviously that the Roman Catholic Church is moving towards ecumenicism, as I illustrated for you last week with the last three popes, especially the pope who's in charge now. But just remember, Christ died for the pope, and he died for some seven, eight hundred, they say maybe even one billion Roman Catholics who are alive, many of whom have found Christ, myself included. When you speak truth into the heart of a Roman Catholic, a church that denies all five of those solars on this stained glass window, they deny every single one of them. 
When you speak truth in the heart of a Roman Catholic, make sure that you speak to them as a person, as someone for whom Christ loves and for whom he died. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if the Vatican headquarters, kind of a country in itself, becomes the actual capital, the actual physical location where the Antichrist rules. But it's going to be all of the isms of the world, Buddhism and Taoism and in, in Hinduism and Jehovah's Witnessism and any ism you can think of. They're all going to come together under one umbrella. But we need with compassion to share the good news with them. Third and finally, you just need to make sure that you're a part of God's kingdom. We read earlier from verse 8, those who dwell on the earth whose names have not been written and the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Their names were not written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. Why were they not written? Because they didn't want them there. And if you want your name there, it can be there. But there's only one way, is you must change your mind about sin, that it is horrible, it is evil, whether it's self-righteousness or adultery or drunkenness or vaping or jeweling as so many. We had someone jeweling in our bathrooms last week. And I don't know what they were sucking on. They come to a, a place where the people of God meet and they're sucking on some drug. Listen, you better repent of your sin because unless you repent, you perish. You come to Christ with your sin as, as evil and it needs to be forgiven and changed and it can only be changed through the blood of the cross. Now, our Father, thank you today for this book that you've given us, that it tells us what you are doing in the world, what is happening in the world, and what you are going to do in the future. Help us to pay close attention to it. Help us as dads, as grandfathers, as moms, that this word may first be in our heart that we might teach our children as we walk in the way, as we rise up and as we lie down. I pray today, Father, for someone listening to me who's really not sure that their names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. Help them to settle it today. Help them to see that Jesus paid it all. Completely, they're dead on a cross. If they will bring their sin to him, he will forgive them and change them and give them a new life. Thank you that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Help someone today, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And then give them the courage to confess it before men. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And if you're here today and you've never publicly, openly confessed Christ, you may be in Grays, you may be on our Hilton Head campus or in Graniteville. I want to give you that opportunity. If you've never been baptized, that's our confession of faith in the New Testament. That's our way that God has given us to say, I'm not ashamed of the death, burial, and resurrection as pictured in immersion. Maybe you're here and you're a believer, but you need a church home and you need one. 
every believer does. God doesn't call us to float and be disobedient. The New Testament teaches membership in a local assembly. And if not here, then somewhere else, but don't float. So if you have a decision, I would welcome you today to leave your seat and meet me here on this front row. Matt's going to lead us. If you have a decision, step out and come right now.